Hello and welcome to At The Letters for Wednesday, November 1st, 2023. Ben Nicholson-Smith here with you and joined today by Shai Davidi on this podcast. We'll pick Shai's brain on all things Blue Jays, but I do also want to shout out our producers, Christian Ryan, who will be putting this together, as well as Nick Andrade. So big thanks to them. Thanks to you for listening to At The Letters wherever you find your podcasts and for sticking with us throughout the offseason, which should be pretty interesting. Shy, I guess before we get into some of the granular stuff, uh, where are you at with this team as they head into a pretty massive offseason? Yeah, very massive, Ben. And this team is in a really interesting place because all things being equal, you think about the season you had, you win 89 games, you go into the playoffs, uh, you make an appearance but it really feels like this season was a hundred times worse than that still. And on top of that, the fallout from the Barrios Kikuchi decision in game two against the twins is still lingering. And I think there's an understanding that that is not the specific reason why they lost, but there's still so much tied into that decision and how it reflects some of the wider issues that the team has to deal with and really unravel this offseason. So I do know that a lot of stuff has been going on, you know, behind the scenes over the past few weeks, specifically how the Blue Jays have managed to address that. I don't know yet. And I don't know that anyone's in necessarily sort of a a great place just yet. And it's probably going to take a little bit of time. There's probably going to have to be some roster moves that, maybe point to how things are going to be different in 24. But I I still think that this is something that the team is going to have to be dealing with for a while. And there are some internal issues and it's, it's hard to peg specifically what they are is there's a lot of talking code and stuff like that right now. That's, that's pretty hard to decipher, but I, I still get the sense that this is a team that's still trying to figure out how it's going to navigate things in 24 because I don't think they want to do it the way they did it in 23 again. Yeah, you you just you need to make some changes and some changes will happen just because of the personnel shifts that are bound to occur when you look at this roster and some of the changes that are that are on the brink of happening for the Jays. I think the internal issues we could spend hours talking about that and and probably, you know, should pull the curtain back on on some of that to some extent and I think too like Let's try to pull the curtain back a little on what might happen in the course of the last three, four weeks. I mean, the Jays were eliminated from the postseason on October the 3rd or 4th, I want to say. And now it's November 1st as we record this. So it's been almost a month. They definitely haven't been sitting there, you know, just uh, biding their time and and watching, you know, Netflix or football or something. Um, They have been preparing for this offseason. So you know, without, we don't even know the specifics uh, of who exactly is atop the the free agent board or the trade board. But why don't we pull back the curtain a little bit as to what that actually looks like when it comes to these three weeks and how important they are internally for this team? Sure. So let's push aside how the season ended. It would just, the normal course of things would be you start talking to teams, you start reaching out about, you know, who you might be trade, what are you trying to accomplish? you know, are there some possible fits uh, trade-wise? 
And then you're engaging with the agents of various free agents on the market. And you're saying, hey, what are you thinking? Is there some interest? We think there could be a potential match here. Uh, Or even talking to agents of players you're not necessarily interested in. Just trying to get a sense of where they think that the market on that player might be. And then you can start gauging potential prices or where the market is headed in different directions. And so that groundwork is essential for the roster machinations that take place. The Blue Jays also have to start thinking about uh, who they're going to add to their 40-man roster from the internal organizations to prevent them from being Rule 5 eligible. Are there some potential waiver acquisitions that you can make? Are there some deals along those lines uh, that you might want to do? You start thinking about your player development staff. Are you going to make any changes there? I don't think the Blue Jays are necessarily looking to make very significant changes on that front, but there's always a little bit of attrition that takes place. And uh, there have been a couple, uh, you know, longtime members who are or notable members who aren't coming back next year. And uh, AAA Buffalo pitching coach uh, Jim Norton and uh, Florida Complex League hitting coach Corey Hart. So uh, there's definitely some openings there. So that's sort of the normal thing. And I think on top of that, there's been a lot of conversation. Okay, why and a lot of focus on why did this team not hit? And that's a deeper dive that front office with their analytics department are are kind of looking at saying, okay, what, what is behind this? Like we had a lot of players who underperformed the projections, who underperformed expectation. What is at the root of that? Is there, are there some commonalities? How do we ensure that doesn't happen again? So that's one layer. Then the other layer is, okay, are you going to bring back your coaching staff as it is, uh, you know, I'd expect there to be some movement there. It sounds like there could be some movement there, whether it's how significant it is, we're still working on that. And then how are they going to meld this together so that some of the the distrust and the frustration over what happened in game two, uh, which was essentially a, a microcosm of, of the season, how do you work through all that? So, I mean, that's a lot to pack into three weeks. Uh, it, obviously, not all of it is going to be finished just yet, but the business of the offseason is almost here. So a lot of things are going to start happening pretty quickly. Yeah, it's actually like so much to get to when you when you lay it out like that. And you think about, okay, like internally, whatever they do with their free agents, whatever they do in, in trades this offseason, it's probably not going to compare in scale to what they could get out of a Vlad Guerrero Jr. or the difference between Alec Manoa 2023, which was, I don't have it in front of me, but let's say it was zero war as a, as a shorthand. He could be a three war player next year. That's a huge swing. Same for a guy like Dalton Varsho, um, who, you know, offensively really regressed this past season. So they have to find ways to get the most out of these guys. They have to find ways to get the most out of their coaching staff offensively it just wasn't a good year Vladdy in particular you know just as a as an aside on this I was looking at some of his numbers and you know this is the sort of thing that maybe in the course of a season I don't do quite as much because you know it is there's just so much going on every day but kind of looking at the way he was pitched and like it's remarkable just how consistently opposing pitchers would just throw breaking stuff at the bottom of the plate off the plate balls in essentially the left-hand batter's box and Vladdy would get himself out on those pitches. He would swing at stuff down in the zone way too much. He is a monster on on pitches in the middle of the strike zone. Still, the, even this past season, he is is absolutely incredible at crushing mistakes over the middle of the plate. But he would get himself out far too often. And he became, I think, really, really easy to pitch to. 
So that's a problem for Vlad Guerrero Jr. It's a problem for the coaching staff. Does not reflect well on this group and them getting the most out of a generational hitter. But, you know, I am starting to, to get off track already here. Um, <laughs> a little my, tangent there. Yeah, exactly. Um, my, my basic point is there is so much to do with this team because, like you said, when, when the World Series ends and you get to the point that you can actually officially start talking to agents, you have to know, all right, like, Maybe Scott Boris, he's going to take his time. You know, we all know that's not going to be November the 7th that they sit down with him and have those advanced discussions. But for some of the smaller free agents, and the Jays have done this with Robbie Ray in years past, for guys that aren't necessarily represented by the biggest agencies out there, there's a real opportunity in the first couple of weeks to move quickly if you're prepared. Yeah, for sure. And it's kind of interesting, just as you were you know, making your points there, talking about Vlad, it's funny. I was at the, the gym this morning and someone came up to me and just started going on about how frustrated he was about Vlad and like Vlad's not good. And it's like, dude, Vlad is really good. And I think what happened in some way, and this has really gotten lost. And I think the Blue Jays have to work on this too. So internally, they understand they were a good team and there's just a lot of frustration about why it didn't come together, right? But externally, people maybe don't realize how good a base the Blue Jays have to work off of. Now, the fact that you didn't get the most out of it is the problem, but the Blue Jays aren't here starting from scratch. There is a good base of talent that if you help optimize, it doesn't even necessarily have to be peak years, but you just have to be closer to closer to peak than closer to Valley. Then all of a sudden this team looks vastly different. This offense looks vastly different. And so I think one of the things the Blue Jays are going to have to be careful of is to not overreact to what happened last year from a roster move standpoint, right? They got really strong defensively. It helped their pitching staff be elite. And if you're going to start saying, oh, we got to get offense, we got to get offense, maybe you start punting on defense a little bit, you change the composition of your team, and you diminish yourself in ways that you maybe don't necessarily have to. So I think there's an interesting discussion to be had about whether they went too far on the defensive end last year uh, or last off season, and did they they maybe try to overcompensate for what happened the previous year? And I think this year, just striking that right balance between augmenting what you have, you know, ensuring that you get better internal production from what you already have in place, uh, and then not not sort of switching the identity of your team too far is going to be a real tight wire act for this team. Yeah, you got to hold on to the good parts of of this team and just allow them to exist and give them the plate appearances and the playing time to show what they can do. And to me, Vlad Jr. is absolutely a part of that. Like, uh, you know, with with respect to your buddy at the gym there, <laughs> I think, you know, <laughs> Vladdy is Vladdy is someone who's who's got a really, really bright future ahead of him. I guess I'm going on this tangent full on here. So because I have the numbers in front of me right now. OK, swings by zone. If you look at how pitchers pitched Vlad Jr. this past season, most of the pitches that he saw, if I'm reading this right, which I think I am on Baseball Savant, the zone in which pitchers threw him the most pitches was off the plate, low off the plate, like breaking balls low off the plate. That's by far, that's the easily where he saw the most pitches. And 
it's by far where he swung the most. So, you know, he is giving in to the pitchers. He is not sticking to his own approach. And we know he has the ability to lay off that stuff. We know that, you know, that's an adjustment that he can make. It's not out of the realm of what Vlad Jr. can do. But, you know, this is a point that Eno Saris made on a podcast I was listening to recently where Juan Soto just ignores pitches at the bottom of the zone, knowing that he might hit them hard, but they're essentially going to be ground balls. And maybe Vlad Jr. needs to make that sort of uh, adjustment himself to the point that he is maybe working himself into deeper counts. Maybe he's getting called out on strikes more often, but just doing more damage at the top of the zone instead of waving a breaking balls off the plate. Yeah, for sure. And it's interesting that some of the conversations that I've had around Vladdy, you know, someone at one point last year, uh, someone whose opinion I trust, just said, you know, a big part of this is just maturity for him and that we have to understand that he has to go through a process and that he at times has maybe tried to force things because he feels the weight of the expectation because he wants to be the guy for this team so badly and that if he's going to get to the point as a hitter where he's going to realize, I can't do this anymore. I have to lock in and I have to accept and be willing to walk 130 times a year like Juan Soto does. Yeah. Right. That That's something that Edwin Encarnacion had to go through too. And it took him a long time in his career until he got to the point where it was like, okay, I'm done swinging at these bitches just because I can make contact at them doesn't mean that I will. And, you know, one of the conversations I had with Vlad, at, I think this was in late August or early September. I can't remember exactly where. Uh, might have been in Oakland. So early September. And he was saying that you can know that you have to do things, but sometimes you're in the moment and you want to do it so badly that it's hard to hold yourself back. It was essentially the point that he's making. And that to me is just maturity. We like we forget how young he is, like that he's 24, that he's been in the majors basically his entire adult life. <laughs> That's a tough grind. Yeah. And he's had the weight of the franchise on top of him. And so I think that he'll get to the point where, okay, but, you know, and he said that, you know, he said that he, he trusts his teammates. But I also think that if there was someone super productive behind him, that it would have been maybe easier for him to take some of the walks too. And maybe that's where you miss Teoscar Hernandez or Lourdes Gurriel Jr. in a way that you didn't necessarily expect to. Or, or maybe if, you know, you get more of first month Matt Chapman. 1-1, one, one, slugged out to right center field, hit pretty well. Green's at the wall, it's gone! The red hot ride with Matt Chapman rolls on. His where, you know, that's when Vladdy was his best over the first five weeks of the season. That's when you're getting best of Vladdy. And all of a sudden, you know, Chapman starts slumping, then Vladdy starts slumping. And there are some other factors with Guerrero as well. You know, he had the, the issues with the wrist. He had the issues with the knee. And those started popping up in May when the, the numbers began to decline a little bit. And so, you know, maybe there's that piece as well. But I, I think you look at all those factors together. There's absolutely a strong reason to think that he's going to be the player that he can be. You know, there's definitely no lack of motivation. There's no lack of yeah. intent and any of that stuff. So uh, I just, I think that this is part of the ups and downs that you have to endure with a baseball player. And, you know, we just want so many players, young players to come to the major leagues and it's a linear line upwards and you just get better and better and better. But it doesn't always happen that way. Yeah. And he, he came up at a time that, you know, Fernando Tatis Jr. and Juan Soto and some of these young players, Acuna too, like those guys 
really have had that upward trajectory. And man, it's not easy. Like that's not the norm. Those guys are on Hall of Fame paths and Vlad Jr. might well be on that path as well. You know, we'll see. He's he's definitely got the ability. I'm actually like for all of the, you know, criticism that Vlad Jr. has taken this month, base running mistake, absolutely can't make that. Looking at some of these numbers, you know, these these aren't a good thing for for him when it comes to his plate approach. But I'm still a huge believer in what this guy can do. And, you know, I do want to move on to some other topics here. But, um, like, it it is a topic that comes up, at least among fans. And, um, you know, I I tend to think that there's very little chance the Blue Jays trade Vlad Jr. But um, what do you think about that? Do you see there as being a real chance? Because to me, I think it just plays out at this point. Yeah, I I think it plays out. I mean what kind of deal are you going to make that is going to make sense? I mean, you've got two more years of Vlad Guerrero Jr. with in salary arbitration. And, you know, the chances of them agreeing to an extension this offseason are essentially nil, right? Because I can't see the Blue Jays wanting to commit a nine-figure salary to him after the season that he'd had and a couple seasons that he'd had, essentially. And... Why would Vladimir Guerrero Jr. take less than what he could after a big season? And then he starts getting closer to the market. Well, all of a sudden there's less motivation to sign the deal and, you know, more more interest in seeing what the market can present. So the the timing of this essentially is pointing to Guerrero moving to the market. And look, if you're going to try to win, I mean Maybe there's a challenge trade where you can do Vladimir Guerrero Jr. for someone like him with similar levels of control, you know, and I've heard lots of people suggest, oh, why don't they do Vlad for Juan Soto or whatever the case is, which, you know, sure, interesting, but you're also shrinking your window. Yeah, exactly. Like, I'd way rather have two years of Vlad than one year of Juan Soto. Yeah, exactly. So... I don't know, you know, like I think there are a lot of creative ways to think about it. And I think the Blue Jays should and will think about all these different possibilities. But, you know, they weren't listening on Bo and Vlad last offseason. They're not going to be listening on the on them in a meaningful way this this offseason. But I think next offseason we're having a vastly different conversation, especially depending on how 2024 goes. Yeah. So the I think to me this is more you kind of listen to kind of see which teams might be interested, how they're valuing Vlad for the information. Uh, but you're not really serious about moving him because I, you're not getting value. Like, why would you trade him now when, you know, he's coming off to, you know, good, but not Vlad good seasons. Yeah. I think if someone wants to approach the Blue Jays and try to buy low, but, you know, pay a really, really steep price, I mean, sure, I guess you could be open to that. But I don't think the Blue Jays take this to, you know, other teams at the GM meetings next week and say, hey, like, just so you know, we're listening on Vladdy. Like, I really don't think that that's. Yeah, that's not happening. No. Yeah, that's not happening. And and nor should it. So, hey, as long as we're um, talking about, you know, narratives, though, and some of the, you know, more. you know, talked about discussions around this team. I do want to touch on the World Series. And I think it makes sense when you look at Lourdes Gurriel Jr., Gabriel Moreno. There's no way around this. I mean, whether whether we, regardless of what conclusions we draw about it, these guys are pretty prominent former Blue Jays who are playing in the World Series. So I guess, 
you know, I, I do want to hear your thoughts on that trade with the benefit of one year's hindsight. I know you touched on this in your latest column at Sportsnet. And, um, you know, broadly what you make of, you know, their role on this Diamondbacks team and what that says about the Blue Jays, if anything. Yeah, it's kind of funny. Uh, uh, I was out for breakfast a couple of weeks ago and uh, somebody sort of interrupted the conversation and was like, the Moreno for Varsho has to be the worst trade in franchise history. And I was like, uh, no, uh, it, it's not, not, not <laughs> even remotely close. Uh, Michael Young for Esteban Loiza. Let's start with that one. Yeah. And that's, uh, but this narrative, like, look, this could not optically, this could not have gone worse. Right. Like Dalton Varsho, um, had a, a, a tremendous defensive season, a bit of a subpar offensive season, uh, and the Blue Jays lose in two games in the wild card round, and Arizona's in the World Series with Moreno and Gurriel front and center. Gurriel hits this ball hard, deep left field, it is gone! This place has been waiting two days to explode, and Gurriel gives them a reason to hear. So optically, it's terrible. But I think that if you're judging it like on one year, absolutely. Tough L for the Blue Jays. Did not work out. But this is not a one-year deal, right? There's still three more years of Dalton Varsho. Arizona still has, uh, was it four or five more years of Moreno? At least five, yeah, five. Uh, five, year, five more years of Moreno. Uh, and Gurriel's headed for free agency. Yep. And so uh, I think, you know, of the things that you can litigate in that deal, it was it's, I would go back and I've heard a couple of different versions on this. Could the Blue Jays have done that deal without Gurriel? Because I think if you do that deal without Gurriel, it looks a lot different. Uh, and I've heard the suggestion that the Blue Jays needed to sort of move some of the the money on Gurriel or wanted to, uh, at least or just, just to make it sort of a, a revenue neutral trade. And then I've heard also, uh, the other version I've heard is that the, the Yankees were pushing hard on Varsho at the time as well. And the Blue Jays included Gurriel to make sure it got done. So... I'm not sure which which one is 100% true. Uh, I've heard both things from people I, I tend to trust. So there's probably maybe a little bit of all those elements at play there. But if Dalton Varsho goes back to being the 2022 hitter, then we're not having this conversation. You're like, that's fine. This, this is a really good player. He's going to be in center field in all likelihood next year, uh, barring some surprise. So his defensive value is going to play up even higher. Trying to give the Blue Jays a little length out of the bullpen, a little flare down the left field line, long run, and a great sliding catch by Varsho. My goodness. And then that hard tumble into the wall. And then if he's making the type of contribution he made, like I do think the Blue Jays also put him in a really bad spot, like put, batting him clean up out of spring training. It's it's just a lot to put on a yeah. player right out of the gate. Like they didn't re- necessarily set him up to succeed in the best way. You know, if, if he's starting the season at six or seven in the lineup and, you know, can just sort of ease into the year, maybe, maybe the outcome's a little bit different. Uh, but, you know, I think if he's six or seven in your lineup, he's got a chance to be a really productive player. And with the defensive value, you are not going to miss it. Yeah, no, that makes sense. Also, real man of the people, shy of Edie, just trying to have some breakfast, trying to get a workout <laughs> in, talking Jay's trays, getting your dry cleaning. You just there's no escaping it. There's no escaping it. I, I tell you, I, I don't know how, if, what, what your experience has been like so far this offseason, but. I feel like I've had more conversations with just people uh, who just want to talk about it 
more than almost any other season I can remember, even maybe more than 15 and 16. Yeah. I, I just feel like people are still having a tough time wrapping their minds around what happened. Yeah, I think I think they are. And that does line up with with my experience. Um, I've definitely had some conversations with um, with people both in person and even just, you know, online, you can kind of get a sense of it. Like I wrote an article last week looking at some paths forward for the Jays. And I, I don't know, I hesitate to read too much into online comments of any type. Um, but at the same time, like I get the sense that people just kind of weren't ready to have that conversation yet. And that it wasn't, you know, people were kind of like, no, I'm not ready to talk about how this 2024 Blue Jays team could be good. Like I'm still kind of down about 2023, which fair enough, you know, maybe, maybe that applies to some people listening to this right now. And, you know, that's, that's fine. That can happen at its own, at its own pace. But, um, but yeah, it's it was such a frustrating season and it ended in such a devastating fashion for the Jays that I think people want to talk about it in in some cases. And and at the same time, too, there's insult to injury with the Diamondbacks trade. And I think like, look, honestly, like watching a team like the Phillies, the more I watched them, the more I was impressed by them watching the Diamondbacks. It's the opposite. Like, no offense, but watching the Diamondbacks, like the Jays are better than the Diamondbacks. I'm sorry. They are. And the good for the Diamondbacks, they're having an awesome season. And like, that's to take nothing away from the trade, which like that trade is a home run of a trade for the Diamondbacks. And they so far, yeah, time will tell. We'll see. But so far, they come out far, far ahead of the Blue Jays. And the Diamondbacks, that's got to be one of their best trades in franchise history. Um, it's certainly shaping up to to be that way. Now, again, that doesn't mean that the Blue Jays shouldn't have traded Moreno because they did have a lot of catching depth. It's a question of what they could have got back. And Nick Ashbourne looked at this at Sportsnet recently. Could they have gotten more You know, for a player in Moreno who's not only has the bat-to-ball skills and the defensive skills, but now is showing off power as well? That looks like an absolutely incredible trade for Arizona. But at the same time, when I look at their team, and I'm like, okay, like Merrill Kelly's your two and, you know, you start bullpen game in game four. And it's to me, it's, you know, like, yeah, Kevin Ginkle, that's a nice story. But is he really like this isn't an amazing team to me, but good for them. Like that's and nothing, you know, take nothing away from what they're accomplishing. But uh, yeah, that's sort of where I land on it. Yeah, for sure. And and all that is totally fair. And I would agree with you on Arizona and to me, it's just the latest reflection of how, I don't want to say dumb, because, I mean, baseball is dumb in general. But, like, the playoffs are kind of dumb, but they're crazy. They're fun. Yeah. Uh, but they don't necessarily make sense. They're not crowning the best team. They're crowning the hottest team in a four-week tournament. Yeah. Right? And I think, you know, I wrote about this last year when the Dodgers got knocked out, but we have to start doing something to better reflect how difficult it is to win the regular season and to better recognize that. You know, I, I, you think about English English soccer and you've got the premiership, you've got the FA Cup, right? They're two different things and each one is meaningful in its own way. And I think we, like, if you're the best team in the regular season, like if you're the Baltimore Orioles this year, like there should be a better reward if you win the American League or the Dodge or the excuse me Atlanta for winning in the National League. Uh, you know the Dodgers last year. 
there should be some sort of prize that, and that that really means something. If you're if you finish the regular season with the best record, and you know maybe it's you you go to you know total league no divisions, and and then you have the playoff tournament after, and that's like its own prize. The World Series is its own prize, but. To me, the regular season means something. A winning in the regular season means something. And then the World Series is a bit more crapshoot. Like you can't control. Like I look at the job Atlanta did. Like they put yeah. together an absolutely Uber team. Like it literally had everything that you could want. And then then they got rolled by Philadelphia. It's it's so wild, right? Yeah, it is. It is. Like I, I think it's definitely not a it's definitely not a perfect measurement, like the playoffs, that is. They're not a perfect measurement of, you know, what the best team is in Major League Baseball. I'm okay with that. I don't think probably, you know, maybe at one time, you know, when only two teams per league make the playoffs, you're going to get a lot closer to that on a consistent basis. I'm okay with this departing from that a little bit. I do still think that there are huge advantages to winning a lot of games in the regular season, like avoiding the wild card round and being able to rest some of your players down the stretch. And of course, like you're still vulnerable to, hey, like Atlanta's offense disappears for three games, you're done. And that that sucks for for a team that was historic as far as its offensive output. Um, but I, I'm okay with it. I'm okay with even if the Diamondbacks come back and win this thing, like they'll have earned it. They earned their way to the World Series, like good for them. And I still think like if you're the Blue Jays, you got to aim higher than 88 to 91 wins. You've got to just try to do everything you possibly can to win that division. And on that front, they have a lot of work ahead. Yeah, for sure. And yeah, same way. Like I, I, the World Series is great. I just think we need to say, hey, the regular season means something a little bit more. And maybe that's that changes some of the mindset. If there's like a real trophy to be won for being, I don't know, one of the best three teams or one of the best or the best one team in in your league, you know, that to me says, okay, we're rewarding the regular season properly. And then let's reward the regular season, the World Series, uh, the postseason as well with the World Series. And so, yeah, there is a gap for the Blue Jays to get there. This is an interesting question. And I'll put, I'll throw this to you back, Ben. But like, is the gap between the Blue Jays and the Orioles as wide as the finish in the standings would suggest? And, you know, how much if you're internally, you're making the internal improvements that we talked about before, and you're getting more out of Vlad, you're getting more out of Varsh, you're getting more out of Kirk, maybe a little bit more out of Springer. uh, You know, are you that far apart? Like if the Blue Jays hit 15 points, 15, 20 points higher with runners in scoring position, are we having this conversation right now? (laughs) You know, I I think that, that to me, so to me, that's why I don't think the Blue Jays can overreact. But like you said, just trying to put as much talent in that roster to give you to give the, to give themselves a bit more of an opportunity to sort of have other weapons in the holster if something goes wrong. Yeah, I, I do think that the Jays and Orioles are probably closer than a lot of people would think, at least going into next year. There's no reason the Jays can't win the division in 2024. Um Again, they have a ton of work to do before we get there. Uh, I'm not saying they're close to that or should be favored or anything, but of course that's on the table, um, just as it is for the Orioles. We'll step aside here in a second before we um, before we get to some of the more granular stuff. But how about this? Is like an, I literally just came up with this. This is an out there idea to reward a team that um, has the most regular season wins. So every player on that team gets a one million dollar bonus, and the team 
that finishes with the best record every season gets the sixth overall pick in the next year's draft. Oof. I, I, I like the idea, but as I wouldn't go like that high, I'd say t- take another, give them a, a bonus pick after the first round. So 31st overall. 31st or whatever. We throw in a co- few comp picks, but yeah. you know, what w- something, something in that range. I love that. Like let's, okay. re- I do like the idea of incentivizing winning. Yeah. Yeah. Well, um, someday, someday. Um, We will step aside here for a moment and then we'll come back and talk about some of the decisions facing the Blue Jays in the next couple of weeks. Listen to At The Letters ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. All right, welcome back to At The Letters. And uh, before we got distracted with uh, Vlad Jr.'s swing decisions and uh, Shai's breakfast companions. We did actually <laughs> want to do a uh, uh, GM meetings preview here. And so we are going to return to that. And really, as you said off the jump, Shai, like the Jays have to, like they have to be thinking six, eight, ten weeks ahead of times um, when it comes to the offseason. They have to know right now that they're likely to non-tender Adam Simber, for example. They have to know what they expect the trade market would be for Santiago Espinal if they wanted to listen uh, to offers on him or on Trevor Richards. So they have to be thinking pretty far ahead, but this stuff does happen in sequence. And so the first decisions that they will end up having to make have to do with options and qualifying offers. So why don't we start by running through some of those um, and we can see whether we agree uh, on what the Blue Jays will do, what the Blue Jays should do. And I think to start, I mean, the Whit Merrifield 18 million mutual option, I suspect that you and I will view that one pretty similarly. Yes, the, that one will be declined. And it's kind of interesting. Do you remember? I think this was like in June or July. Uh, we had a conversation or like, would you would you extend Whit Merrifield a qualifying offer? And we like we debated it with some seriousness. Um, but that, that one's pretty clear and, you know, what's going to go to the market and we'll see how that develops. Yeah, it's, uh, I do remember that. And I think it must have been in July when he was on that like Homer binge where uh, he kind of carried their offense for a few weeks there um, and then, you know, really slowed down at the end of the season. So that's a pretty easy one. They will decline that option. And like you said, he'll hit free agency. All right. So I'm going to go a little bit out of order here, but there's also the Matt Chapman decision, which is to say Matt Chapman's a free agent and he has a chance to land a pretty big deal. My expectation on Chapman is the Blue Jays will extend him a qualifying offer and he will decline it. I agree. And I don't think there's, if Matt Chapman, I don't think he would accept it because I think his market will be better than that. And uh, people that I've spoken to seem to expect that will be the case as well. But if he did accept that, you still have the elite defense and, and power uh, potential from, from Matt Chapman at, at roughly $20 million, maybe a bit more than you'd want to pay. But I think uh, for a one-year deal for a player of that caliber, uh, I, I think he'd be comfortable if he accepted. Oh, yeah. I mean, he's, he's a really good player. I know he didn't hit for a lot of last season, but... If you look at the totality of what he's done year after year, even if you look at the totality of 2023, it's a good player. Um, He's not that old, really good defender. I I think you'd be totally comfortable having him back around 20 million. But at the same time, 
he's like, in my opinion, I, I think he's going to get something north of a hundred million this off season. I don't think it'll be way north of that. Like, I don't think he's, I don't think he's approaching two hundred million. But I think he lands a hundred million dollar deal uh, with someone this off season. Yeah, and just for uh, for context, uh, per Fangraphs, he's a three and a half win player. Yeah, you're very, very comfortable paying him that much. And even in a down offensive year, he's a three and a half win player. So, you know, I think that you could certainly look at it and say, all right, well, he didn't hit the last month and change as he was dealing with uh, some hand issues. Uh, but, you know, it's a dude who posts super athletic, uh, works, works really hard, does all the right things. He's going to do well in free agency. Yes. And I suspect it will not be with the Toronto Blue Jays. Um, but we will see. So those ones are pretty straightforward. Uh, I don't think there's really too much intrigue there. Um, but, you know, of course, we'll be uh, shy and I, I should say also shy and I will be covering the GM meetings from the, it's Scottsdale, right? Scottsdale. Yes. Yeah. Um, I should know that because <laughs> he'll be there in a few <laughs> days. But um, yeah, uh, I knew it was I knew it was the Phoenix metro area. I just wasn't sure which um, which suburb of Phoenix we're talking about here. So Yes, we will be covering the GM meetings. Those will be taking place uh, next week, uh, the week of November the 6th. Uh, We'll have coverage there on sportsnet.ca and at Sportsnet. So looking forward to that. We'll cover all this as it unfolds. And one of the, actually the one option decision that has the most intrigue is the Chad Green option decision. Um, There are three separate possibilities here. Well, really a fourth because it's possible that none of these options end up being exercised. But the first one, is a Blue Jays team option for $27 million over three years. Okay, that's the first one. If that is declined, Green then has the chance to opt in to a one-year $6.25 million player option. That is his choice. Then if he declines that, the Blue Jays then have one more shot at this thing. They can pick up a $21 million option that covers two seasons for 2024 and 2025. So... I guess let's start at the very beginning of this, Shy. 27 over 3. That's the first decision that has to be made. If you're the Blue Jays, 27 over 3 for Chad Green. What, what's your thought around this? Okay, so I, I know you'd want to sort of break it one by one. Or, or, or go gonna, in or plunge in, whatever you think. I'm going to frame it a little bit differently, okay? I think the Blue Jays are doing one of the two options. Wow. And I, I, know, I know it's pricey, but... I think I saw enough from Chad Green that in, in that month that as long as there's nothing in the medicals that we don't have access to that scares you, as long as you trust in the medicals, I think that that's either one of those is a reasonable value for a reliever of that caliber. Uh, I do think that if the Blue Jays decline the first one, then Green is going to decline the one-year option because I think that he'd feel that he could do better than 6.25 on the market. Uh, and probably get a multi-year deal. And so I think the decision comes down to the Blue Jays. You know, do you want to spread the money around a little bit more over three years? Or do you just take the two years that you're still pretty confident that 24, 25, that's that's your window of opportunity because you know you have Bo and Vlad for those two years. And, you know, you leave the bigger decision on that. You, you You don't add something to 26, Unnecessarily, so you pay a little bit more upfront. I think to me, that's where this decision lies for the Blue Jays. And it also depends into or ties into what else they want to accomplish this winter. So, does that little bit of extra savings doing the three year option 
help you out enough this winter to make it uh, more appealing than the two-year option. That's to me where this decision lies. Yeah, interesting, interesting. Like, man, to me, it is it is definitely a question of of health that's front and center in this because if you look at the relievers who get multi-year deals in free agency, more often than not, and, and this is maybe different for, you know, there are exceptions to this where you look at guys who come off Tommy John and you get like a two-year option, but one of those years is a recovery year like it was for, um, you know, Kirby Yates has done that and others. So um, that's maybe a different story. But if you're talking about a lucrative, you know, eight, nine, 10 million AAV multi-year deal for a reliever, those guys who sign those deals tend to be coming off fully healthy seasons. And Chad Green, he came back, he had a pretty good month, um, more so as far as the peripherals than as far as the ERA, which we're not too concerned with in a small sample. But he did strike out 31% of hitters. His fastball velo was up to 95.5 miles per hour. So those are signs that you like to see. Like you want Chad Green on your team next year. I To me, I just don't know if you go to 9 or 10 million AAV for this guy after one healthy month. And, you know, I, I guess a different way of, of, of phrasing that to not back into my point here is I would not be comfortable paying 9 or 10 million AAV for one month of a guy based on even though it was a good month. It's to me, that's a high price to pay. For sure. And look, I don't think that it's a, it's a contract that you're putting your head down on the pillow at night and being like, yeah, this is totally good. The difference to me is that there's so much track record there and it's a good track record. Like this is guy, this is a guy who's been in leverage for years in the American league East with the Yankees. You've seen him be totally nasty. You've seen him just dominate in that role. And if you're trying to win, how are you going to replace that? Like that you want guys like Chad green. And I look at the contract Rafael Montero got last off season is three years, 34 and a half million dollars. And he's had like two good seasons before that was coming off a very good season for the Astros, but there was like one other good season, but there's a lot of roller coaster for him in between. I, I mean, if that dude is getting a three year deal at, you know, 11 and a half a season. I mean, do you not, do you not feel better about giving that kind of money to, to Chad green and the track record he has? And I know the blue, the blue Jays haven't done this kind of a contract for a reliever before. So this would definitely be out of their comfort zone, but part of the reason the blue Jays were as good as they were was because they had this dominant bullpen and it's something that, really cost them in 21, you know, that will, you know, as much as people think that this year was a missed opportunity, 21 to me was the most egregious missed opportunity for the Blue Jays in franchise history uh, because they pissed away so many games trying to close them with Travis Bergen and uh, Anthony Castro and a a whole uh, Joel Piamps and, you know, with guys who shouldn't have been in that role because they were just trying to create a bullpen. And, you know, now you've got this bullpen. Don't let this go. Like, this is how you win. And so as long as the medicals check out, to me, I think you can be comfortable paying that kind of money to a reliever of Chad Green's caliber. Yeah, those are, I mean, those are good points for sure. I think like with Montero, he was younger than uh, Chad Green is now uh, when he signed the three-year deal. And when I look at, you know, as relievers get older, you get into like the last offseason season 
your David Robertson, your Adam Ottavino. Like there are one-year deals out for those guys as long as they're effective. There are even two-year deals out for those guys. Um, but I, I don't know if you're getting to to three years or or a two-year deal where the AAV is north of 10 for a guy with that one month. So that is where, to me, I would decline the first one if I was the Jays. Then you hope that Green opts into the one year at 6.25, but probably expect that he does not. And then I would decline the second one too. And I would just let it play out. And I would just hope that either you can sign Chad Green. Maybe it's maybe he gets to free agency and test the market and you bring him back and it's 13 and a half over two. Or it's 14 over two. Or he signs somewhere else and it's the Angels and they give him, you know, three years and 34.5 like Montero. And he's off in LA and then you have to figure it out and you have to find someone else. But to me, that's just a little bit much for your seventh inning guy. I mean, I, I, to, to me, I don't think he's your seventh inning guy. I think he's your eighth and occasional ninth inning guy. And I understand sort of everything that you're saying. Uh, and you know, I, I hear that. I just think you, you, you were buying his age 33 and 34 seasons if you take the two-year option. Right? Yeah. It's a guy who's got eight war in his career, according to Fangraphs, in, in uh, 12 games last year, 12 innings. He's a, a third of, he was worth a third of a win. And you know some of those games are just sort of get yourself back in the big leagues. Yeah. So I think if you, you know, you don't do this deal, if you don't trust in the stuff and you don't trust in the player and you know, the, the blue Jays kind of would have had to know, like they wouldn't just put in these options if they didn't feel like those would have been fair or reasonable for them. And so my expectation is that they would pick up one of those two options. Uh, I could totally be off the mark here and I know it's a pricey ticket and, uh, if they've got something else up their sleeves that they really need the money for this off season, then, then maybe that changes it. But I'm not sure that you're going to be able to do better from an impact perspective uh, on the market with, with, you know, spending in and around that range for your bullpen. The one good thing about trying to shop for relievers is there actually always is some amount of inventory there. And you can say the same about starting pitching this off season where it's almost like for the Jays, like, great they have this really really stellar starting rotation and mostly they're coming back um with the exception of Hunjin Ryu so great they have they have some actual depth there and that's where the depth is in this free agent class where you have Blake Snell and Aaron, Aaron Nola Montgomery you have Yamamoto coming over you've got Stroman and Eduardo Rodriguez and there's actually some pretty decent starting pitching inventory out there but then you contrast that, that to some of the areas the Blue Jays are going to be looking and like third base in particular, wow, is it ever thin out there? Yeah, super thin. And obviously there's Matt Chapman, but I, I, for the reasons we discussed earlier, I don't, wouldn't necessarily expect him to be coming back. Uh, to me, what the one really interesting possibility is Justin Turner. And, you know, if he opts out of that complicated deal that he's got with Boston, then all of a sudden he in a lot of ways is sort of an ideal fit. Uh, his option is worth, I believe, $13.5 million. So, you know, you're going to have to be in and around, I would think, at least the 15 range to start a conversation there or have it uh, be, or to make it anywhere sort of near worth as well. But I think if you're sort of thinking about intangible, someone who's not long-term, not necessarily blocking potential pathway for a prospect like Oravis Martinez or maybe Addison Barger uh, to come up and you know win a lot of time at third base. 
you know that that might be a, a way to stopgap it. Otherwise, yeah, the, the, you're probably going to be overpaying for a lot of sort of meh. You know, like uh, once you're kind of pass through that, it's like you're looking at sort of Jimer Candelario and. You know, I don't. I don't know that you necessarily want to throw a lot of money at that and lock that into a position for more than one year. Yeah, and I mean, I think you'll have to. I think I think Candelario is getting two years, if not three, and and mm-hmm. deserves it based on where he's positioned in this market. But yeah, it is. You can't have a ton of confidence signing um, a guy like Candelario as opposed to a Justin Turner, where like very consistently he has been uh, well above average major league hitter. And I think too. One of the great things for the Jays this offseason is they have the DH spot available. And I don't think that you want to, you know, lock someone in there necessarily to like a three-year deal like they did with Kendrys Morales. But I think that if you're talking about someone like Justin Turner, or even maybe it's a JD Martinez, maybe it's a maybe it's even a platoon where you have Joey Votto in there against righties, or you have a Joey Gallo in there, or there's so many different pathways you can take. Tommy Pham could be in there um, part-time. There are a lot of ways that you can, Jorge Soler, Reese Hoskins, it, they have so much flexibility with that spot. And with someone like Justin Turner, who's entering his age 39 season, I don't think that you're comfortable handing him the third base job and saying, hey, you're going to take the ball back here for 135 games in 2024. I mean, no one's suggesting that. But I do like him as a potential target because maybe he plays 50 games at third base and he's a DH 70 times, and you're getting two war from a guy who, you know, has really consistently been a, a very good major league player. Before today, swinging a high drive down the left field line. That one's up there. That one's gone. JT with number 23. Yeah, absolutely. And I think a lot of the intangibles count with him, too. I think if you look at the type of at-bats that he has, it's sort of what the Blue Jays were missing a little bit last year right and he can maybe provide some of that brandon belt type of wisdom uh that is going to depart with uh with belt this offseason assuming that he doesn't return I, th- I think the blue jays could use a guy like that and again it's you don't i think the blue jays can't count on one of their young players emerging but it would be a great way to set themselves up for having the room if one of them does show that it, that he's ready and you know Arelvis Martinez I think is starting to get close he's starting to push Addison Barger has a chance to push those are the you know, Alan Roden Alan Alan Roden from an outfield perspective for sure you know Leo Jimenez is another infielder who's interesting but you know maybe not doesn't have the power to be at third uh for a lot for the long term but uh, you know defensively he can do a lot of things they they do have an interesting group of young middle infielders, but like really just two of them who are part of the, who, who have a chance to kind of get to third base. Uh, and then I also think, what are you doing with Kevin Biggio? How, how is Kevin Biggio factoring into this? Cause I don't think what he did should be ignored. Uh, and I don't, I don't know that the Blue Jays are going to want to say, here's the job for 150 games. No, but 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 I think Kevin Biggio definitely has a role to play. And when you're thinking about where is he going to get his reps in, you know, factoring him in for 40, 50 games at, at third base isn't a terrible thing. Yeah, you could do it. I think one way or the other, to me, when I look at Kevin Biggio, I think he starts against righties. And I, I think that he's on the bench against lefties. And whether that's second base, DH, right field, left field, 
it's almost hard to map out. And that's part of the beauty of Kevin Biggio and having a player who offers that kind of versatility. And as we saw toward the end, first base too, obviously, toward the end of last year, he was so good defensively. It's definitely the best defensive stretch I've ever seen from Kevin Biggio. The 3-2 and a line drive to right field. Biggio back, jumps, and he made the catch. Another good defensive play by Kevin Biggio. Just incredible performance across the diamond. You're not necessarily expecting that, but he can hold his own at those positions. And so, to me, he's getting 400 plate appearances next year in some capacity, but you still have so many different avenues you can explore when it comes to second base. Third base is really a must for them. DH is really a must for them. You know, left field or center field, but probably left field. Um, they're going to be exploring names there. So it'll be interesting to hear how Ross Atkins frames this when he's talking to us next week, Shy, because, you know, this will be the first chance that we get to talk to Ross about, you know, exactly how the Blue Jays are viewing their uh, their need for offense and how they're going to, you know, approach that. But to me, when I'm looking at this, like they need probably four bats. And I'm not saying four starting guys, like not four cleanup hitters, but you, you probably need at least four or five position players and probably an arm or two as well. Yeah. I mean, I'm trying to kind of think about the numbers. Like, is it four? I mean, let, let's leave pitching aside for now. Sure. Uh, but if we're focusing from a position of player standpoint, like I do think that someone from the group of Davis Schneider, Spencer Horowitz, Ernie Clement, uh, Nathan Lucas, you know, I do think one, maybe two of those guys are a part of this, uh, are, are on one. this roster next. I think maybe even two, because you may need to just save a little bit of money, right? And Damn. just do do you maybe concentrate some of the like? I mean, the Blue Jays can do a couple things. They can do the they can take a spread the wealth approach, right? And like, let's get four different guys, or maybe you just spend a little bit more to get a couple guys. Yeah. who are a bit higher end. Yeah. So I don't think this is happening, but let's just say, you know, you've got a chance to get Cody Bellinger. And they'll pursue right? him. Like th- that conversation will happen. There's no doubt. Yes. But my guess right now is that he probably ends up back at the Cubs or somewhere else. Like yeah. I don't think that, I, I I don't know that the Blue Jays are necessarily like sort of a, a goal team for him unless, you know, they just force his hand. Yeah. So, but if they went that route, they got a player like that, then all of a sudden, okay, well, that's a good chunk of your money available this offseason. So maybe now you're like, okay, well, now we got to go with a couple of younger guys on the bench and uh, in sort of, sort of part-time roles. And so I do think there's a pathway to more than just one of those guys making it, but they're a factor in this. And you know, how much do the Blue Jays feel like they need to – have a pathway for some of their the the other prospects. You know, Alan Roden is really interesting. I think he's a guy who is going to have to both force his hand and then wait for an opportunity. Yeah, I don't think that you know he, that sort of 2024 is his for sure ready point, but he could pu- push himself into the picture. But I do think for Martinez and Barger, like if they're right and they're and they're going like. They're on their ETA. 2024 yeah. would be their ETA. And so are you are you going to factor that or do you have to you know, build out your roster enough and then just say, okay, well, you guys are going to have to wait for an injury or some other opportunity to get in 
versus, you know, like we want to just, we just want to patch things over until you're ready. And then if you show us you're ready, then let's go. Yeah. No, I I think that makes sense. And I, I do think that there are pathways for both. Let's say it's Davis Schneider and an Ernie Clement or Davis Schneider and Spencer Horwitz to break camp with the Blue Jays next year. But I think that even in that situation, you got to be adding at least four bats because, uh, and by bats, I mean position players, obviously. Maybe that's someone with a defensive focus, but four position players because you have a very good chance that someone on this roster is going to start the season on the injured list or something else will come up to the point that your depth is tested one more deep. And I don't think you want to be in a situation where you're breaking camp and it's like, hey, we have David Schneider and Ernie Clement and Nathan Lucas on the roster. Like, I think you got to insulate against that possibility. Now is the chance to do that. That's where I say like four or five position players. I think that's fair. I also, look, I think we both believe the Blue Jays have in the neighborhood of like 40, somewhere in the 40 to $50 million range yeah. uh, to spend, depending on what they do with non-tenders and things of that nature. You can only do so much with that, right? And this is where the we go back to the Chad Green conversation. I mean, if they're taking one of those options, yeah. you know, you're talking about 20, 25% of your off-season budget on a leverage reliever, right? So how much can you accomplish? How much do you want to accomplish elsewhere? And then you have these young players who are in the in the zero to three service time scenario where they're pre-arb, they're not they're gonna cost you less than a million bucks. You know, that might be sort of the, I don't want to say gamble, but maybe that's sort of the calculation that you make saying, we we believe we're going to get X, we can get X out of these guys. And if everything goes wrong, let's concentrate our money elsewhere. And, you know, we'll, we'll feel okay giving those guys bigger roles if we have to. Yeah, I think that makes sense. Um, before we step away here and uh, get set for the rest of the week, uh, any thoughts on the GM meetings? Any thoughts, any last thoughts on what you're looking for, what you're expecting uh, once the offseason really gets started in earnest in a few days' time? I really want to see where the Blue Jays' initial focuses are, right? Like I, I had someone ask me a few days ago, why are the Blue Jays poking around on corner outfielders? And I was like, well, because... Dalton Varsho is probably in center field. So that would make sense. Yeah. Right. So I'd like to see what the initial focuses are. And we know the Blue Jays will sort of blanket the market, uh, which is what they always do. They'll be connected to so many different guys because that's what they always do. But where do you start? Like, you know, we'll have conversations with people and then we'll start getting a sense. Oh, I think the Blue Jays are really interested in this. Or it seems like the Blue Jays are kind of focused on that. And that's when we'll start whittling down things a little bit and saying, okay, this is sort of what they're thinking right now. So that to me is what I'm I'm most looking forward to. What about you? Yeah, I, I think it's they're they're definitely going to cast a wide net. There's no question about that. They absolutely have to do that. I'm interested to see who they're in on on the trade market. Um, that'll be really fascinating. Because that's a way for them to add some upside to this team um, and add some youth to this team too. Because you can't just go to free agency and sign up a bunch of 34-year-olds. Um, you've got to find ways to mix in some some athleticism, some upside, some defensive ability. And I think that's easier to find in the trade market. So trade market will be really interesting to me, even on the pitching side, right? Like, you know, we set that aside for most of this discussion, but 
I think they could use the starting pitcher. Like, I see no reason not to go out there and add, like, if you can get Kento Maeda, like, do it. That'd be that'd be great for this team. So I think there's so many directions they can go. Obviously, it's going to center around bats, in my opinion, but um, they have so much work to do that there really will be activity on a lot of different fronts. That's interesting. And I know, I know we're trying to wrap up. Just quick question to you. Yeah. Right now, how much do you think they have to keep a pathway open for either Alec Manoa or Ricky Tiedemann to be in the rotation next year? I think that pathway will be open. And I don't think that, like with Tiedemann, you don't owe him anything. Um, you know, he's a prospect. If he starts the season at AAA for the first six weeks of the year, totally fine. Um, with Manoa, I still think Manoa has to prove something to the Blue Jays before he is entitled to a rotation spot. So if you sign someone, if the right deal is there, like if you, and I'm not saying you go and sign Maeda for 48 over three on the first day of free agency, but if he's out there and it's December the 21st or it's January the 5th, and you can get him for 12 over one. Like to me, you have to do that deal. And so at that point, you know, maybe that's not what Alec Manoa was hoping for, but First of all, he could be traded. Second of all, um, I think it's more likely more likely that he's in the organization. But maybe he has to wait for uh, you know an injury to open things up for him. And we know that that will happen at some point in 2024. And maybe he's the first one in line. But I don't think that you have to go in with him guaranteed a rotation spot. It's interesting. I, I, the Maeda idea is is super intriguing to me. Uh, it's been a while since he's pitched in meaningful role uh, in relief. I gotta go back to 2019 with the Dodgers, but I think if you could find a swing guy, and the ideal to me, the ideal pitching ad, starting pitching ad, would be like a, a Ross Stripling type who can start for you and then's got a contribution to make in the bullpen if you have to pivot. It, 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 I know those guys are tough to to get, and it, they're very rare. Uh, but to me, something like a raw stripling type who could swing from one role to the other is sort of perfect because, you know, you, that way you've got a spot for Alec Manoa or if Ricky Tiedemann is ready, you've got a spot for Ricky Tiedemann and you're protecting yourself with someone who can bounce back and give you some insurance if someone else in the rotation goes down. Yeah, well, we'll be tracking it all from the GM meetings um, next week. So looking forward to that. Uh, but in the meantime, Shai, thanks so much for making the time. Yeah, pleasure as always. Can't wait for uh, the offseason to really start. Exactly. It'll be it'll be good to turn the page, I think. Uh, and in the meantime, thanks to everyone for listening to us here on At The Letters. Thanks so much to our producers, Christian Ryan and Nick Andrade. And thank you for finding us wherever you find your podcasts. That is it for us this week on At The Letters. Thanks so much for listening. <laughs>